Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Poetry, the occasional poetry conversation podcast. Uh, I am your host, Michael Zuloff, uh, and I am thrilled to be talking with you all again. I apologize for um, the hiatuses. I know that I promised that there wouldn't be any more, but life happens, books happen, I've been sick a bunch. So, but here it is. It's Poetry Month. This is another episode of So Poetry. Um, and I am absolutely ecstatic to be talking to my guest today, uh, Dara Barrois Dixon. Um, so, Dara, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about who you are and what you're up to? Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought I acted very casual about that when you asked me to do that. <laughs> and I, of course, I didn't think about it ahead of time. Um, I'm, well, I'm here yes. because because we're going to talk about poetry mm-hmm. and for the most part that's pretty much all I've done my entire life so I'm happy to talk to people about it even though although having written it since I was a little kid and throughout many different phases of going through life you know mm-hmm. I don't think I have any rock solid ideas about poetry all the time it's more very very convenient to have a conversation about it so that you don't have to <laughs> go on record as believing you know this but i i did think at, uh so i was born in louisiana mm-hmm. i grew up uh in a, in a on a little bitty farm south of new orleans on the river and we grew oranges and tomatoes and garlic were our crops you know for bring into the French market in New Orleans and selling them. Mm-hmm. And it was a great, great place to grow up. I was uh, raised by my, mostly by my grandparents because my parents were living up north of where we were and in New Orleans working. So I was on the farm and it was great because my dad's family was in New Orleans. My mother's was on the little farm mm-hmm. and it made me have two completely different lives. I can, one, I can imagine, yeah. One in uh, one in the city and dictated by that, mm-hmm. you know, and then the other one, in like as tiny a farm and a poor a place as you could ever get to. Yeah. But because it's Louisiana, you always had good food, and you always, you know, you didn't need that much clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geez. That was one of the things. Moving to Baltimore, I naively thought that's like, oh, it's it's north, quote unquote, and I, I was going to be getting away from the really just unbearable New Orleans, you know, like six months oh, yeah. long summers. And yeah. I get to Baltimore right at the end of a summer, and it's just as miserable here. And I come to find out that you know it's not six months long, but there's jam packed like three weeks or so right at the end of July and the beginning of August that feels like New Orleans summers and come also come to find out that Baltimore was built on a swamp and like okay yeah that makes sense that's just (laughs) the the way that that it seems like it goes um yeah that's funny that when you live long enough to have to see patterns of some kind you know yeah because I like I, so I grew up on a highway, basically, because there's only one road between New Orleans and the mouth of the river. Mm-hmm. And um, I I have lived on a highway almost my entire life. <laughs> Every place I've ever... I'm living on a highway right now. 
And I didn't put that together until one day I was having a conversation with a friend Mm -hmm. about all the different places we'd lived. So we were both making lists of them and trying to remember the addresses, Mm -hmm. you know, and that and it dawned on me that night that, oh, my God, I have chosen to live on a highway or a road like all my whole life. What's wrong with me? Wow. I I imagine that there's like, I'm, I noticed like moving from New Orleans to Baltimore, there is definitely something that is, that I apparently need to be living next to a fairly sizable body of water. That's like, I just, I I need it in my life. Like the fact, like imagining being, oh yeah, yes. Um, But like living somewhere or the, the thought of living somewhere and driving to like a, I don't know, like a Target or a Walmart parking lot and not seeing just seagulls everywhere. I can't, like, that feels like that would be so anathemistic to be in a, some, to be someplace and they're just not be those birds because that's, there's always been seagulls in parking lots. That's just how, it, that's how it is. Um, yeah. And that was something that uh, we were talking about um, the studio center up in Vermont. Um, like that was a really, I think that that was one of the main reasons why a bunch of New Orleans stuff started coming up is the fact that there's just this big ass river that runs right through the middle of the city and to be in such inescapable proximity to a body of water moving like that it's just like you know the i i grew up um we lived i don't know maybe like five seven minute bike ride from the river levee um so most of maybe not 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 all of my childhood because we weren't allowed to cross the highway until we were I think my brother and I were both like teenagers or so. Um, uh-huh. So but we would like walk up there and stuff, but we weren't able to to have the freedom to just kind of go wherever in the neighborhood until we were in our I guess like early teens. Um, but so much of my high school was spent on bike rides just up on the levee and like getting down yeah. into the I guess like the spillway sort of like overflow area. Um, mm-hmm. and just like being there and like, you're just seeing the barges and just like the river, yeah. just, you know, like right there that I, I don't know. I wonder if there's some, some energy or something about highways that, that is like conducive to the way that you live or. Well, you know, the way, um, I mean, it was very obvious where I, where I grew up there for the first way people traveled there was on the river. Mm-hmm. Then they built the levee, and people that's where people rode their horses and pulled their wagons and everything was on, on top of the levees. Mm-hmm. Then, so there's two ways of transportation. Then came the railroad, mm-hmm. and it was parallel to that, too. So then there were three. Mm-hmm. Then the highway came. Yeah. And then there was another one. Then there are the canals and uh, bayous like over next. Mm -hmm. So they're, and they're all kind of going mostly north south, you know. So there's not a lot of crisscrossing or anything of any of those things. And it's kind of amazing to think that that is what shaped the whole way everybody lived exactly like where their houses exactly were. And every, I loved, I love all that. It's yeah. really, and I think that does get into, you know, I mean, I, other than living on the river, I would, 
and and having my parent, my father's family in town, I wouldn't have known anything. I was very isolated. I was the only kid around. But every day I saw big ships coming from around the world. Mm -hmm. So you really get a sense that there's a big world out there, you know, and the sailors coming in and the people on the ships were always in a good mood because they were going into port. <laughs> and especially New Orleans port, which is a whole other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, they, they waved to you and everything. And like the United Fruit Company boats would be un unloading fruit that had gotten ripe and they didn't want it anymore. So we were the beneficiaries of all the fruit that they threw out and basically threw to us. Yeah. Of course, to us was not any different than going to a Mardi Gras parade, basically. <laughs> uh, and so, and it, and it was a really great place to grow up. It was so uh, isolated, but also had so much going on all the time. You know, farms are pretty busy. Yeah. So anyway, um, and also, you know, this was a long time ago, so my father was in college for part of my time growing up. So when I would see them, which was sometimes on the weekends, mm -hmm. um, I would look at his school books. Oh, okay. And when I was a little kid, like when I was probably four, I, I remember being about four because I remember going to his graduation like the next year. But um I, he had one of those big fat, he went to Loyola and he had, it was one of those big fat anthologies of English literature. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there were many, 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 what I thought of as pictures of poems. Okay. And I thought that the way the words and poems looked was just like in just the greatest thing ever. Yeah. So I, I would, they also had a typewriter on the floor in a closet. And it was sort of the coolest place in the house. And I'm by temperature, I mean. Yeah. And uh, I, I used to make pictures of poems. Oh, wow. With the typewriter. And I don't know, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about what they said. Yeah. I was literally making pictures of poems. Yeah. And trying to make put work, and then I would draw them too when I wasn't there. And I thought this was like the greatest thing ever, and I don't know why. Yeah, wow. It's almost like when you were talking or describing that, the first image or the first thing that came to mind was like constellations. It's like you're just, there are these things that like you don't have, like the, the words, the language of it, that you don't necessarily have a full comprehension of but you see the shapes that they make and like you gain meaning out of just the shape and the the sort of form and how they exist on a page yeah. um which is well like, you know yeah go ahead well you i, I ahead. was just thinking it's like it's different than like concrete poetry that's supposed to sort of mimic like the the shape of the poem i guess implies yeah. or mimics whatever the subject is or whatever the themes or whatever is going on but this is more of an almost like interpret like visual interpretations of them or it's like you know, like scrying or some sort of um i don't know like uh reading almost 
Well, I think, it, you know, obviously I to romanticize it, which is fine by me. Um, I knew there was something really important about it, you know, and I loved it. So I wanted to do it. Yeah. Wow. And, um, and then I learned that I could send my poems out into the river in bottles, you know, so I was immediately, obviously, like wanting to send my work out into the world. <laughs> Not, you know, but I had, and I didn't think anything about, I always thought it was like going to where the boats came from, going south, you know. Yeah. Then when I moved up to New England, I found out that the Gulf Stream takes the Gulf water around the tip of Florida and brings the currents, bring things up here. <laughs> so that was cool. That made me happy. Yeah. Wow. Have you, yeah. like, this might be a long shot, but have you ever encountered anybody that when they were a kid just randomly found like a, a poem in a bottle just washed up on shore somewhere? No, but I do know older poets who, like, you probably know Mary Ruffel's work. Mm -hmm. She is right now occupying the position of the Poet Laureate of Vermont. And they, you know, Poet Laureates always have to have jobs. <laughs> you know? so, and they have to do something. So she's taken... Um, I don't know how this is working now, but she she's... I haven't asked her how much mail she gets back because she's been just randomly picking out names out of the phone book, which is amazing that they still have phone books. <laughs> and well, I haven't seen a real phone book and I can't even tell you how many years, I either. but you can get one. You can literally get one. So um, she's been sending poems to random people in as her job. And I think she's sent out a thousand. You know, not her poems, other people's poems. Oh, that's so cool. And, and the, so a poem just arrives in your mailbox and you don't know where it's from or who sent it or anything. That would, I really, I I would like to imagine that there is like a, a kid who has never encountered, anybody who has never encountered poetry before and they just get this random poem in the mail and that radically alters the trajectory of their life. I mean, in best case scenario, you know, maybe more actual case scenario. It's just that there's like a, a little spark that gets dropped into their life about a thing that's like, oh, hey, I didn't know that this is something that I, I enjoy yeah. or that I'm interested in. Wow, that's, that's well, really and cool. You know how we, I mean, look at how superstitious people, even who claim to not be, are. And um, you get something like that out of the blue, unrequested mm -hmm. and unanticipated in every way. And there's bound to be a message in it to you. Oh yeah, I'm sure that anybody who gets a poem out of the blue will find some some way to correspond that poem into whatever it is that they're going on in their life almost, yeah. immediate, almost immediately. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Anyway, so I went to Catholic schools my whole life and that was great. I had excellent teachers and they were giving me good, good, good books to read from when I was probably 10 wow. or you know, really young. And I was a pretty precocious reader. So, I mean, that's mostly what I did in my 
I didn't have little, I didn't have other kids to play with really. Yeah. So a reading was the greatest thing in the world to me. You know, it was, it was not that different. Lots of times then seeing the boats go by. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to know how other people lived and that's how I would find out about it by reading everything yeah. I could find. Anyway, and I was really lucky to have good, good, good teachers in high school who loved poetry. And, you know, they did nothing. They didn't teach it to you. Mm -hmm. They didn't do anything with it except say, all right, for the beginning of every class, you're going to have five minutes to write a poem. And that's all you did. Wow. And you, then you gave it to them. They picked them all up. And then the next day they would read two or three of them. Hmm. So you would, you know, we got the reward of you know, <laughs> having your work, you know, have a little audience mm -hmm. you know, and be selected by, you know, the, the authority in the room, you know, or whatever. Right. And, um, and it was not, there was no stress or trouble about it. And, Thank God there was nobody sitting around analyzing poems, you know, because yeah. when I had to start enduring that in college, I couldn't take it. I hated it so much. It was like, no, no, no. This is a, this person's worked really hard to say these words. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I didn't know. I didn't know better at all. <laughs> so it was uh, yeah. pretty Education was great. Yeah, that's that's something that I've I've encountered a lot. I, I with people that that are either n like usually non English a major people that have had a very very limited exposure to poetry, mostly just you know like a random poem that they've had to analyze in class or something, and the just that like what feels to me the the total missing of the mark of taking a poem and learning it and dissecting it in that way. It feels almost like you're like, in order to learn about a butterfly, you capture the butterfly, kill it and dissect it. It's like, no, you learn about the butterfly just being out in nature and watching this thing and experiencing it. And, yeah. and that like, that has been, I think one of the aspects about poetry that has been the most reinforced in my life, um, just in my experience with it, in my own writing process and my, my learning about it, um, at least the poems that I tend to gravitate towards are poems that like you feel like the, the goal of this poem is to make you experience a thing that is very, very akin to whatever the experience that the poet had that in, that wrote, like whatever the experience of the, the poem is, that's what you should be having. Um, and it's still, it's so difficult sometimes to like turn off that critic, that analysis voice in your head. That's like, well, there, you know, there's this thing that's happening. And there's this thing and there's this theming that can draw back to this other poem in the collection. It's like, no, I mean, yes, greater scheme. Sure. There are all these things that are weaving through it, but like the point of this poem is to sit, is like to, to have this experience. Um, and that feels like that is very, very, very far away from. Uh, well, I think people are taught to be kind of like that they're they're lacking something if they don't analyze it. Yeah. Like it's treated. It's really poetry is mishandled in a lot of institutionalized situations. Not always. There there are plenty of exceptions. Mm -hmm. 
know, where people love it and know how to let it be and still can spend, you can spend a whole hour talking about a poem and not be analyzing it. Right. But you have to be aware of the difference. Yeah. Yeah, you really do, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I've taught workshops to make a living my entire, since I was 22. And so I did a lot, I've taught a lot of workshops, you know, and and, and how I felt about them have, has changed plenty, plenty different ways mm-hmm. over the years, you know, and, um, and it, it, I'd be lying if I said I didn't learn anything by a lot of those changes and a lot of the realizations I had, not about write, how, to write, how to write, mm-hmm. but actually how to read. Mm, okay. And, um, you know, and I used to lots of times annoy a lot of people in my workshops because I'd say, hey, you know, put the pencils, pen, put the pens down and the pencils down. You know, don't don't start rewriting this poem. Do not don't even dare start rewriting this poem. It's not yours. Mm-hmm. This person who's letting you read it and talk about it is is sacrificing their poem. Yeah. You know, to to let people have something fresh and brand new cuz it's pretty thrilling to see a brand new poem. Yeah. You know, and especially if you're in good circumstances in some kind of workshop or seminar or meeting with friends in a house, it doesn't matter how you do it, but it can be a pretty big thrill to know you're going to see a brand new poem from, you know, people all the time, all the time. Yeah. You know, anyway, so eventually I, I, I like I said, I've had made my living teaching and forever and um which was very very lucky i had really good circumstances throughout my life to do that and i had two kids and um and when i first came here to in to teach at the university of massachusetts in amherst i um i had one child and then a year later i had another one and so i had two little kids and um I was divorced and then uh, James Tate and I became lovers and stayed together until he died in 2015. And um, so he was their stepdad and he and I, and because of the way divorces work, you usually share custody of the kids. So for when they were little, I would, go to Jim's house and work and write and stay there when they were gone. And when they were here, he'd come here all the time, but we, but we didn't write at my house. We wrote at his house because there was nothing nothing going on there. (laughs) So it's true. But as the kids got older and older and older, eventually in high school, eventually gone, Mm -hmm. you know, I, we wrote over there almost every day. So it was a, that was a thrill because the deal was you had to show up. If you started at noon or one o'clock or two o'clock, you had to show up at five, six, seven o'clock with something to read. Oh, wow. So he would read my poem to me and I would read his poem to him. Mm -hmm. And that was great because if somebody can cold 
read a poem and read it, really read it. Something's right about the writing, even if it's not finished yet. Mm-hmm. No, um, and so that was fabulous. And one of the books I wrote when he was alive and wrote over at his house was uh, after my kids were grown up, and I so I was there a lot working and. I had decided I was going to write um, 81 lines a day, nine lines in nine stanzas. Okay. And uh, I didn't start, I started doing that because I could see some other poems I was doing that was kind of getting to where that form was starting to take shape. Mm -hmm. So I decided to just go for it and, uh, make it part of the book I was, I didn't know what, what book I was writing, but the writing I was doing. And uh, I, it was like the best writing times of my entire life because I got so, so deep, deep, deep in the shape of the poem, the sounds of the poems, mm-hmm. like knowing that I was going to stay there for 81 lines, you know, and uh what took shape was a book that I adore and so it was a great experience to work that hard you know and and that was and partly because you had somebody at the end of the day who you trusted not only could read a poem a new poem and give it a break Mm -hmm. or but start to really get with the program of what's going on if this is going to keep happening every day every day every day every day yeah and it got to be it was pretty exciting wow it's great work wow you know that like that oh. to me sounds like a, a dream writing existence to be able to just have it was that that oh god that sounds man oh yeah so but this this I, i've always written pretty much all the time mm. And um, that's why I didn't go to any residencies or anything, because it just didn't make sense to me. It was like, why would I take up a place that somebody else would, you know, want, need, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or just want, because it works for them, whatever it means, you know, and that's okay. But um, I... I guess I, I've been thinking lately. Am I doing an introduction for you right now? <laughs> I mean, this, this is like into the phone. This is, yeah, this is this is podcast now. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, is there anything you want me, you want to know about me that I haven't said? I feel like I've said everything. Um, well, no. I mean, I'm I'm curious. Um, like when you were talking about the like not like in a workshop, not rewriting a poem um that is something that i i actively struggle with because i'm i'm both in a writing group and i also i run my own micropress um and i'm i'm in the throes of some edits right now um and despite the fact that i've been doing like editing for my press for the better part of like eight eight ish years or so i still Uh there are times that I'm, I'm still uncertain of if the edit that I am making 
is because I'm really locked in and intuiting what the poem, or at least what I feel like what the poem is doing. And like my edits are helping the poem get to the point where it's like, I think that this is where it wants to go. And I think if you did this, it would probably get it there. Or if the edits are my own voice was like, well, if, if this was my poem, this is how I would edit it this way. And I feel like there's all, like, well, that's a hard call to make and you've got to be wise enough to know the difference and just being conscious of it helps, you know? Yeah. Uh, there was a I lot mean, of, a lot of times I've stopped, I've stopped suggesting edits. It'd be more of a, like, you know, there's something happening in these lines or these stanzas that feels kind of off to me, or like, there's some, you know, like this feels a little muddled or, you know, or just calling attention to a thing, but not giving any sort of suggestions on like how to, how to, how to fix it. The, the thing is, if you're given, okay, so so let's say I reject everything I've said about not rewriting, okay, and I do a whole workshop where it's, the deal is everybody rewrites everybody's poems, mm -hmm. and that's the thing that we're going to do and see what happens. I'm sure something good could come out of that, but not necessarily feel good to a poet. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, that was something that I, like, in all the workshops that I that I, that I've been through, is finding the like it really only felt like right at the end ironically enough when i was working on my my thesis for my um my master's program where it was i want to say like seven or eight maybe nine graduating poets that we were all in the same class all really yeah. working intensively on each other's manuscripts yeah. that i really kind of felt like i finally arrived at like oh this is what workshops should be it's like it's it's highly collaborative it's people providing ideas but it's also people that like i've been in class with for the past three years that really know my writing and i know yeah. their writing and i know that i can like i trust their opinions and their views of things and even if the suggestions that they make are not necessarily what's what i feel like is right for the poem it'll at least get me to start thinking about and seeing things differently because they're per giving me a perspective that i never would have considered yeah and like that can spin me off into like oh this is what okay, well, this isn't landing and this is how they kind of read it, but that's not really how I wanted them to read it. So these are some, maybe some ways it's like, oh, okay, well, I could change this. I can move this thing around. I can get like the image or the experience more evocative in some way. But yeah, like I, some of my early workshops in, uh, in undergrad were very, very rough. And a lot of people just like not having either the, the experience of the vocabulary to really sort of like talk yeah. about, writing in a way that the writing like needed and wanted to be talked about yeah it's hard well and especially under i mean undergraduate classes are made up of most people who aren't going to write poetry yeah that was the other that was the other issue is that no, and that's okay yeah. there's nothing wrong with it i mean you know and uh, it sometimes is really good. Sometimes people discover that they like to read poetry, even if they can't write it, yeah. or don't want to, don't don't want to take the hours of a life that it takes to get better and better and better at it. It's not any different than any other skill. Yeah. In terms of like putting in the time, you know, it, it, you got to do it, and you also have to be willing to change your mind constantly to try out different ways things might work. And that's one of the greatest things about poetry. You can write down a word and the, and the, and the word is like, 
open and then you can go no close <laughs> i mean you, it's like you it's on the shock of what you can do yeah and and how the words like, amazing and how a single i mean there are often times that i i will get stuck on like a line or a word because i know that's like there is something that needs to be so many syllables or have this sort of rhythmic impact to this line that needs to mean this kind of thing. And then it's just really just like, I, I often, I've been lately oftentimes writing with a thesaurus just like up on my computer that I can just type in like a word that's like, okay, oh, I know that it, it needs to mean this, but it's not this actual word. And I just look through the ones that's like, oh, that's the color that I'm looking for. And I can drop that in a poem. But yeah, it's also, it's, it's amazing how, how much like a single word can radically change the energy or just the vibe or the direction of a poem or you like there was one that I was I had not necessarily a word but for my uh, graduate thesis I had everything arranged and like ordered the way that it needed to be and there was one poem that basically fell right in the middle of the of the collection but as it was it couldn't work because of like the the um the arc of the collection was going from like very closed off poems to very open poems. And the poem in the middle was opposite that it went from open to closed. And it's like, well, it can't be that. So I basically just like flipped it upside down. I put the, like the last couple of stanzas first and I moved the first couple of stanzas down. And it's like the core of it felt the same, but the energy was like, it was so, it, it was like kind of what we were talking about before, like when you find the name and the gears lock into place, like there was something about that poem that was kind of wishy-washy. And then when I, I swapped it around, the things locked in. I'm like, oh, okay, this is what this poem needed to be. And I never, like, I never would have thought in all of my, in all the revisions that I would have done to that thing, I don't think I ever would have thought about to just flop the first two stanzas and the last two stanzas and just swap, like flip them. Yeah, but that's exactly what needed, like that's what needed to happen. Um, yeah, it's good when it's good when there's a clear break. Yeah, in something that you know can be different, and you do it, and the revelation of it being, you know, like exponentially better is a thrill too. Yeah. It's really great. So um, now I. So I have a new book coming out called Tolstoy Killed Anna Karenina, mm -hmm. but it keeps being delayed and delayed because of the famous supply chain. Yeah. And so uh, I bet you, you haven't even, I mean, you don't have it. You haven't seen it. I, right? I've seen, I want to say I've seen the cover of it on wave um, yeah. on their, yeah. on their site and I have it bookmarked to order um, because I was actually thumbing through uh, in the still of the night before we started recording. Um, Cause that is, unfortunately it's my first book of yours and it's unfortunately my only book of yours that I have. I got it in an AWP a handful of years ago. Um, and it uh -huh. is, it's on my shelf of like highly influential poetry collections. Um, <coughs> but no, I, I'm, I, the Tolstoy killed Anna Karenina is on my list of things to get, but I unfortunately do not have it yet. Oh, no, you, no one does. I mean, <laughs> a few people got PDFs of it, you know, but um, it was supposed to be out April 5th. Mm. And so now it's maybe going to be out the end of May, maybe not. 
This is a long, this is a, the longest, weirdest publication waiting that I've ever experienced. And at first I thought I didn't mind it. I didn't care too much, you know, mm-hmm. but this, the last time I got extended again, I was thinking maybe I kind of do care about this. I, it feels starting to feel like the book is out, but it's gone. Yeah. You know, in a way, anyway. So as I was talking earlier about the one residency I really did in Marfa, um, I finished that book, Tolstoy Killed Anna Karenina. Mm -hmm. And I started for the rest of the time I was there, really working on a book that I'd been collecting parts of for about 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's a book, it's, it's a book that has more of a necessity for some kind of collaboration, probably with a book designer or a art book type maker, because the book is called The Pieces. And so like the titles run in a ribbon across the top of the manuscript nonstop, not in aligned with any poem under them. It's just a ribbon of titles. Oh, wow. You know, and then it's got beginnings of poems. It's got many tables of contents. It's got endless numbers of epigraphs. It's got all, it's got all the parts that books come in, mm-hmm. collage together. And it's, I was so excited about it. I was crazy about like all, all the stuff I could do. And I, for the most part, got the, main contents which includes first lines last lines and sort of middle ish thing like something i haven't figured out a name for them yet i don't want to call them middle (laughs) and so so i'll figure out something anyway um and i got i i the weirdest thing happened to me i still um i'm both kind of intrigued by it and a, a little bit appalled by it and a, a little bit um, curious to see. I, I, I'll never know why it happened. Mm-hmm. Not really. So I, I came home from Texas and COVID happened. Mm-hmm. Like literally the weekend I came home is when the whole thing exploded. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, well, I'll just stay home all the time and I'll work even more. It's okay. And so I put the pieces out on a big table. I usually put books out on when I want to look at them and was going to work on them, on that book. Mm-hmm. And then in every everybody was really terrified then. Mm-hmm when it first started and confused and lost and wanted to talk, but didn't even know what they wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. And um, so I saw a lot of, it was good, good enough weather. So I saw a lot of people outside, like people were doing then. And um, every morning I would usually before I'd get out of bed, I'd read, um, something I brought with me to read maybe, but I'd always read this magazine, this online magazine that you might know of called hyperallergic. Yes. I, I'm familiar with them. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, I started reading it and kind of got into the habit of reading it every morning. And the way it works is that they always suggest connected things to articles that you just read. And so you can go down, take many, many trails mm -hmm. if you want to. And it started turning out that really often I would start to think of a poem. Mm. And so I started doing it and how I decided to do it was to do kind of sonnet length, well, 14 line poems mm -hmm. in lineated. And at the bottom of the page, do a prose piece that might say like, after looking at pictures by blah, blah, blah. Or it might be after reading, after listening to, like I might like do a little, but I also might do something that's more juxtaposed to it than directly connected to it. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that and I kept doing it. So this is now two years of it and I probably was writing three to four poems a week wow. from that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I was like seeing patterns like we talked about earlier. I um, dawned on me that, oh my God, I'm going to have to like tell hyper allergic that they caused me to write this book, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. You know, and I hope I hope they like it. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, the poems just kept coming and coming. So this book, the pieces that I was so wanting to do, mm -hmm. is sitting on the table, just staring at me, you know. And so I got sidetracked, I would say, and did this other book, and. I decided that I needed to stop or else I would really neglect the other book. And I can't, I gotta, I won't be happy yeah. if, if I do that. So I put a title on the, they're probably about 200 poems and I'm gonna cut it down to like seven, I don't know, seven, I don't know how many. Yeah. I, I haven't read it all, to, I haven't read the whole thing yet. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, can I read you one of them? Yes, please. That would be fantastic. Well, and it's kind of like to, to answer a little bit or say a little bit about the poem. This one's called Poetry. <laughs> and so uh, it'll say not everything, by no means everything I think about poetry, but it says a tiny, tiny little bit. And I'm not going to read the prose part because I changed it. And so I'm just going to read the top. Okay. Okay, so... Poetry. Poetry makes bad things we say better. It makes the unforgivable things we do come close to seeming forgivable. The worst, understandable, the least worthy, somehow elevated. And that may be what poetry does. It may be why it even is. It takes what's awful and says it's tragic. It makes lies less lethal, it blows oxygen on flames. It holds on to names better left forgotten. It pretends crime is a paradox. It takes what kills and says it lives. There is no stopping what poetry does. Mm. So that's one little thing. 
I really like that. I, I, that, it feels, it's so weird that, like, I've had to really think about, like, truth, in a sense, <laughs> in dealing with poetry, yeah. that you have, you have journalism, or yeah. reportage, whatever, that is objective truth, ostensibly, um, that it is relating to you the things that have happened, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> how they have happened. Um, and then you have fiction, which is like, none of those things happen, but there are elements of truth that exist that are embedded into them to make them seem more believable or real. Um, yeah. And I feel like they, it skirts like emotional truth. And then you have poetry, which for me feels like it lives almost entirely in, a, in emotional truth that like it doesn't it doesn't matter if, let's say, Mary Oliver actually went on the walk that she went on and saw the things that she saw when she was out on her walk. Um, what what matters is it's like emotionally these things happened the way that they happened and they resulted in like the feelings the the core of it is the thing that is like that needs to be true but however how you however you got there is circumstantial or moot it doesn't matter it's like what matters is that you were you arrived at this thing that's embedded at the core of these poems that like the yeah. truth, the truth of this is how it feels um yeah which is a really weird like i think <clears throat> I think because poetry doesn't necessarily have any allegiance to anything other than, or at least again, the poetry that I, I tend to kind of gravitate towards, I don't want to big, I don't want to make big proclamations of poetry at large, but <laughs> it feels like the, at least the poems that I, I enjoy reading that like, because the allegiance they have is not to truth or fact or, or, or authenticity to an extent, <coughs> that you have the ability to do the things that you said in those poems. It's like it turns awful things into tragic or tragedy. It, it can, it can uh, soften the lies of things that are told. It's like, it can hold the space for names or things that like, otherwise you like, there's no other place for these things to exist anymore, except for maybe in, in the bowl of a poem. Um, because, things in poems don't have to be actually factually true. Like that doesn't matter. What matters is like, well, if it sounds this thing and these words together make you feel the, this way, that like, that's, that's the truth of this. Um, Maybe you make a, you can make a distinction between realistic mm -hmm. and true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a good. True example. is not necessarily realistic. Yes. <laughs> and so you can like, do that and that helps a little that that makes it easier a little bit to understand that i think you know so anyway but all these poems are pretty short and the danger of a lot of them is this kind because of, that i think that poem i just read to you you gotta take it with a grain of salt you know mm -hmm. and most of the people who read and and know my poems pretty well by now they they seem to know that there is always a grain of salt, you know. Mm -hmm. No, because it's true. I mean, I, I mean, it's very much imp it's important, and tone is the thing that can kind of like let you know that 
yeah, I sound like I really am being emphatic and I'm, this is it. Right. But right. we all know that that's can't be right. That, you know, can't be like that. So um, and anyway. I, and I think that poetry, again, sort of like because of the, the, the space that it occupies, it's like you can kind of get away with saying things that sound like they are emphatic declaratives but when they're in the form of a poem it's like everything feels like it's lowercase or it's like it's not it's not getting up on top of a mountain and screaming these things it's like talking to somebody in a bar over a beer that that's sort of like yeah you know it's like you're being emphatic about it but it's not this it's not big and fast you know it's like it's 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 in it's within parentheses almost it feels like it's like a commiseration almost it's like you're letting somebody in on something that you're like you think it's true but you don't know if it actually is, but you just, you have just enough confidence to kind of like convince them and yourself that this is actually the way that it is. But it's like, it's, it's, it's real tenuous. <laughs> it's a continuous conversation most of the time, yeah. you know, but thank you for letting me read that one. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was, I'm, I'm excited for whenever that book eventually comes out to, to get my hands on it. Oh, I don't even know when, you know, I'm not even ready to call it a book yet, really. I did, I mean, I did what I said. I said, I better put a title on it, put it together, and then maybe it'll stop. Yeah. Oh, I, I, that was going to be, I guess that sort of answers a question that I had that, like, for you, like, do you tend to work on things by, like, project or do you just kind of start writing and then eventually that writing more or less coalesces itself into like a shape or discernible like oh this is what this thing is i could never do a project i mean I, that idea would kill it everything for me mm, okay no it has to be like that more uh i guess people would call it organic mm -hmm. way of starting something and then starting to see a pattern and start starting to do something and thinking, well, I think I'm going to keep doing that yeah. and see where that goes and explore that shape and those, you know, spaces that you're creating and stuff like that. I, that's like, even, even with this book, um, Anna Karenina, I, um, I was asked to, you know, had like in a very sweet, sweet, and I took it really well because I was enthusiastic about it. Mm -hmm. Said like, oh, could you? Do you think you could include a poem in there that really speaks to that title? Mm. You know. So at the back of the book, there's a thing called notes and evidence. So I thought I had already covered the territory, <laughs> but but I, of course I said sure. <laughs> <laughs> course I can do that yeah and then for about almost two months I hated myself <laughs> I hated every word I put on the page I was so depressed I hated all of it I couldn't could not write a poem like that mm -hmm. and so I finally I had another poem that ended the book and I thought well I could just stick a line in that poem that says or you can throw yourself under a train <laughs> yeah it feels like that that covers it that kind of covers it yeah so the book starts with that the book ends with that so I mean Tolstoy's book does yeah so I that that and then I put the, that title on that poem mm, okay. to make it have, have a title but I really did experience some of the most painful writing in my whole life, trying to meet 
meet the assignment. Yeah. So I mean, it wasn't really an assignment, but the the implied need to you know do something with it. anyway. It was miserable. <laughs> I was so excited when I solved that problem. You yeah. know. Yeah. And then I I had another experience that was similar to that, which was the the book I talked about earlier with the eighty one line pieces in it, parts, poems in it. I thought I was finished it. I took out a hundred pages of, you know, whittled it down to something not quite so intimidating. And um, I was, I proofread it, the, the book after it, we had been typeset mm -hmm. and I was proofreading it. And I, not thinking about that book at all, sat down and started writing a poem that was a came out of the blue. I don't know how it ha happened, but I started writing it and I finished it and Jim read it to me and we both thought it was a good one. And the next morning I woke up and I was like, oh my God, this poem should be the preface poem of this book I just proofread. <laughs> and I called the editor and I said, look, I wrote a poem yesterday that has to be in this book and it has to go in the front. Mm -hmm. And I read it to him and he was like, yeah. And it, it was so crazy because to picture the book without that poem, yeah is terrifying wow and it almost happened yeah that's that's wild that it was just waiting in you until for whatever reason that that moment to appear well, I, think, I think the proofreading it must have done it you know that it like hit all the little little lights firing up in my brain again mm -hmm. and and but i wasn't thinking i was writing a poem right i was proofreading right yeah you know? Yeah. And so it was a gift to me for, uh, and I was so lucky. I was so lucky. I'd look at the book, you know, like after the book came out, I'd, I'd look at it and think, this book would have made half less sense <laughs> if this hadn't been made and put in the beginning of it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And to, and to think that like, if you, if you had for whatever reason, like if you were doing the proofreading and the poem started bubbling up and you're like, well, no, I'm going to, I need to get the proofreading done. I can deal with that later. It's like, if you would set that thing aside and not chase it down, it like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be here. The fact that you, you did that, that you wrote that poem. Not knowing that right. it was go there. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. That's made it possible. So see, that's like the opposite of the other story. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I um, if I set very loose rules for myself, I generally do okay. Like the the uh, a poem a day at the studio center was great for yeah. me because it didn't like they didn't yeah. have to follow any rules. It didn't have to be anything specific. It was just whatever it was I was dealing with that day. I'm gonna write a poem about it, and then that's it. Um, but like if I I have never had a consistent writing practice um because anytime that i sit down to force myself to write when i'm not like 
I'm not in the mood or I'm just not in the, the right state. I hate everything everything that I generate in, in those instances. It's just, it's crap. I hate it. Um, and I realized this is actually one of the, the big, the sort of uh, really important realizations that I had at the studio center was the idea that like, that was the probably the longest stretch of consistent writing that I've ever had in my life. Uh-huh. And I think the only reason that it was attainable was because I was like perpetually in the open creative state. Like I, I was in that, in a, like a, a prolonged creative, um, like invitational creative space for that entire month because I didn't have to, yeah. I didn't have to think about anything else other than just poetry and hanging out with writers and just like washing some dishes occasionally throughout the week, which is like, as far as work goes, is like the lowest that requires the least amount of me from any job that I've ever had in my entire life. Um, At least you have to get to have your hands in the water. Right. Yeah. And I actually, there was a poem that I wrote about, I was like, I, I was the, the sort of genesis of the, or the idea of the poem is like, how, how can we, um, how can we ever mistake a thing for something else? Like, how can we, how can we ever think that one thing is something else? And the reason I was doing that, I, that I thought of that is because I was washing, um, spoons and there was a, like some of the silverware was consistent, but other silverware wasn't. And I had just two spoons in my hand and I was like, these look totally different from each other. It's like, how can you, how can people think that these things are in that, like, that sparked a poem and it's like, okay, well, I know what I'm going to go right when I'm, when I go to my studio, yeah. but, um, that's a good, good thing about residencies, you know, they really impose, almost impose on you or invite you yes. to keep an open, open, open to be where you're ready. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's really, really beautiful. And I didn't know that for most of my life. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, no. Like to your point of maybe like feeling like you've never needed it, it feels like you you come to that. It feels like you might exist in that state more than other other poets do. That's like just having access to like. I work at it. Yeah, I try. I try to do it. I do. Yeah, I I kind of have to. Like, I I wasn't. I didn't write for about three or four days last week because I had to. I had company, Mm -hmm. and um. And I was getting like sad, you know, I was, and I, and then I really wrote yesterday and today finally, and I felt a million times better, mm-hmm. you know, take care of like, it's, it's, and I, I don't think I wrote anything great or anything, but I wrote. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I went, um, uh, one of the things that I do for exercise is rock climb. There's an indoor gym that's relatively close to where yeah. we live. Um, and like it had been over a week since the last time that I climbed. And yesterday I, I had a dentist appointment. So I took off work um, and was just kind of like afterwards, was just kind of feeling shitty. Like I had a headache and I was like, I didn't sleep super well the night before. And, uh, but I was like, you know, I'm going to go climbing. It might be a shitty session, but I'm just going to go and be on the wall and just go do something. And fortunately, like my headache cleared up. So around like six, I went and climbed and like, I got, I was there for maybe 45 minutes doing it. And I didn't do everything I wanted to do, but just the fact that it's like, I did something. I left feeling it's like, Oh, I like, I got it. I'm, I'm there. And yeah, I, uh-huh. I feel I've, I've been trying to, uh, for the, since October, I've been trying to do at least two poems a month just as like a really, really loose, um, it gives me enough wiggle room, um, 
to allow myself to like really get into those creative states and when I'm not to not worry about it. It's like, as long as I get two a month, it's like, that's, that's a relatively low bar. Um, I'll give you another alternative to that. Like just to be speculative about something, you know? Yeah. Like I think one of the good things about writing too much, and I, I think I might write too much a little bit. Um, is that you don't put so much pressure on everything you do. Yeah. Because uh, if if anything, I write too too much. I have I have too many books mm-hmm. around and stuff. And I'm grateful for that because that's the way I apparently have to live. But it does make you go like, well, that was a that was a bad one. Yeah. That that one, but I don't care because I'm gonna do it again. Right. Yeah. And maybe another one is going to come, you know, so it's kind of, it, it, I guess I'm spoiled. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely feel like, because when I, when I write my poems, it definitely feels like I'm coming up with like a capital P poem because, you know, this is the yeah. only thing that I've written in the past month and a half. Um, and it, there's like, there is a level of like, I guess I don't I don't know if I ever really realized that I put this pressure on myself, but the idea of like, well, it's like this has to be good. Because, I know. Because otherwise I'm not gonna write anything else for like another month. Um yeah, but yeah. and I guess that's probably why like I, I think I don't know if other I don't I have not encountered a lot of other writers in general, but poets specifically that write like this. So I, I don't know if, if my process is, is unique or just re, very different than other people's, but I think I do a lot of like, like poems germinate in me for a long, long time. And I think my unconscious or subconscious, one of the two or both does a lot of work on like forming and processing the poem before my conscious mind ever, ever comes in contact with it. So when I like the, the experience of writing poetry for me, you really is, it's like somebody pops into my brain and hands me like a piece of paper I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid, but it's like if you if you wrote on like a pad, um, like a like a stack of paper, and then took off the sheet that you wrote, and then you know like used a pencil yeah. or something to do to like um, color in the other page, you can kind of see. I it. did it a lot. So, yeah, um, that's what it kind of feels like. It's like I there's I get handed this page that has the poem on it, and most of the words are are visible to me, and I can write. And other times I have to like get the pencil and sort of like uncover the impression of the thing that was on top of it and then i can kind of continue but it does really feel it's like you know i'm in those instances it's like i'm being i'm being gifted the the capital p poem um yeah and i don't i don't do a a ton of writing like i don't do any writing outside of those moments where i'm i'm hit with it and i chase it down and i'm done and then you know it'll be another it's it's must feel good to have faith in your subconscious doing all this work on its own well and it and, and i believe it does i don't i don't have to be convinced about that you know it's like it's like dreams you know dreams are just gifts yeah you know, it annoys me so much when people pretend like they hate them i'm like how can you hate this thing that like you have no control over and then they look at you like that and they go that's why I hate them because I have no control over them. Yeah. I'm like, well then get over yourself. Yeah. And it, it really does. It's like, I, I don't know. 
like I've never really had. I mean, I've I've never really had nightmares. So my my sleeping and my my dreaming has never been visited by like my partner. Um, I don't know if she if she still does, but when she was younger, she would have like terrible stress nightmares and stuff. Um, so sleep oftentimes was not a like a safe haven for her, or even just you know a, a place yeah. to just let the mind just do whatever. Yeah. Whereas for me, it, it has been, but it it does feel like like the poems that I get do feel like they come from this place that I don't have control over, which is a very weird thing to think about that. Like, I just, I'm, I'm gifted simply like, like you said, with dreams, it's like, I'm gifted this thing from some part of myself that I, it, that feels fundamentally unknowable, but is a, is a essential part of my writing process because, and I think that that's actually, I think that that's the reason why whenever I've tried to have like a, a regular writing practice whenever I write I'm generating from like in those instances I'm generated from generating my poems from my conscious mind not my unconscious mind and I don't think I don't I don't think I can consciously write good poems I think everything that I consciously write is crap I think that I need the like to just let it sit in my body and get like a um uh, I had the, I had one of these when I was growing up, like the the rock polisher things, where you just you, you dump it yeah. in there and like spin it around. Yeah. yeah, that's what it kind of feels like. That there is like I I absorb these ideas or these experiences or whatever, and they sit in yeah. me and they just kind of get tumbled and polished, and then one will pop up and be like, oh okay, this is a poem, yeah. and I go write it, and then it's just quiet until the next thing pops up. I think that makes sense, and it and it seems really plausible. You know, it completely does. It's 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 not the same as, but it is. Uh, I I have a good friend who's a poet who, for months and months, she just writes down lines or words or notes in a notebook. Mm -hmm. She does one 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 notebook every month, and then she takes the notebook and recollages like collages, which the lines that she likes oh, wow. from her, her notebook. Yeah. And, and I didn't know that this was like her, that was, is her practice, you know, and that's kind of great. And it's, it is, it's kind of what you're describing only physically on paper instead of in your brain. Yeah alone you know but but a, a journal can function a lot like somebody's unconscious or brain yeah too you know yeah and i it's weird like i think so growing up i was i was very very christian and then in undergrad i i walked away from christianity um but like i discovered poetry when i was christian so there was a weird overlap of like because because my poetry process has been i think the same way since I started writing poetry where like poems just sort of appear in my head when I was a Christian, I viewed those as like, or the way I interpreted that was like direct, almost like direct revelation from God. That's like, God's just yeah. dropping this little thing into my brain. Um, yeah. And I was honestly like when I was in the process of, of leaving Christianity, I was honestly petrified that I wouldn't be able to write anymore because it was so, intrinsically tied to my belief in God um, that there was, I, I was like, I was scared, but I eventually, I, I, I felt like I, I had to walk away. So I did. And for about four or five months, I didn't write anything. 
And then there was one afternoon I was hanging out on my uh, balcony in my apartment um, and like dusk sort of happened and an air conditioner from a couple units away kicked on and suddenly there was a poem in my head and I was like, oh, it's there, <laughs> they exist. But, you know, it's like that and, and having to shift from like, okay, well, it's not God giving me these things, but it's still happening the same way. So there's there's some other process that's going on and the best that I can come up with having having written poetry like this for i might say something really terrible right now so you can like but you know i mean maybe maybe you got a better god i mean maybe. you know it's not like i mean it doesn't sound like it's that different no no not at all it's like it feels the process feels exactly the same i think it's just the the origin or the genesis of where those things come from has shifted for me as something that came from outside and now is something that feels like it is entirely in-house um uh -huh. but huh. yeah but yeah it's, it's just it's and it's weird that there's a lot of like i never it's i've been realizing this more and more over the last couple of years um after having like done this podcast for a while and having talked about my process and sort of trying to drill down into it that like there is a lot of implicit trust that I have for myself, like this this part of myself that I know exists and I see evidence of, but I have never met um, in the way that like is the same sort of implicit trust and like belief and faith that I had in God when I was a Christian. Oh, yeah. And it's like, but in a more like I there's more I feel it more completely and more authentically for this whatever this weird part of myself than i ever did it's like this is what i feel like i should have been feeling for god when i was a christian but like it was just a like a uh, a shadow of what it is that i feel for myself which is a weird weird to think about that like that's the relationship that i have with myself or some part of me that i know is there and i have evidences for but i have never actually consciously met yeah, but it's like it's doing stuff i think that's probably where my intuition comes from too it's just the weird you know something that my body is doing unconsciously that feeds into my consciousness in a way that's like it's you know kind of like the um what we were talking about it's like it's not these big emphatic declarations it's these like little itty bitty slips of stuff right under the door They're like oh okay here's an oh okay this is what i think and like even my thought process too that like I will get thoughts that just sort of, if I think about a thing or if I tell someone that I have to think about something, I'm not actively thinking about it. I'm just giving myself enough time for my like unconscious to tell me what it is that I think about this thing, yeah. which is a, another weird process of just, I, yeah, it's. Well, in your past, when you were in school studying poetry, what kind of poetry were you really attracted to? No, well, I didn't really enjoy um, When I was in, I guess, like high school, I was attracted to the romantics. Um, and then when I got into like undergrad, I was still sort of like interested in them and then got into um, like the postmodern or like the modern writers like Pound and Elliot. Um, but was like I didn't I didn't start reading poetry for my own enjoyment and edification like outside of class until there was one day I was in a bookstore and I happened to just be I was about, I was in a, the local Barnes and Nobles and I just happened to pass the poetry section and I was like 
I've taken a poetry class this semester. Let's see who's on, like, who's on the shelves. And the first book that caught my eye was Redbird by Mary Oliver. And that, like, that fundamentally, one of the fundamental changes in my, in my writing and my understanding of poetry was reading that collection and being like, oh, poetry can be this. Oh, yeah, that's a great feeling when that happens. So it was... can be this. Yeah, and then... So it was, it was Mary Oliver was the first real big shift. And then um, really getting into haiku was the, uh, was the second like fundamental change in my writing. And like those two things sort of combining with themselves. It's like, that's, that's basically like Mary Oliver, Jane Hirschfield and haiku. And a little bit of like Charles Wright is the, basically like the foundation of my writing uh-huh. practice. And, uh, you know, like, uh-huh. um, yeah, and it was because of, te- like, the haiku thing was because of the teacher. It was, like, an offhanded comment in um, one of my one-on-one meetings with him. He was he was saying that, like, my poetry was very vivid but felt really untethered and not grounded. So if I could think of any poetry that was very image-heavy and felt very grounded in, like, specifics, um, to seek it out and try to learn from it. And I had a poetry collection, or I had a haiku collection that I never read. I just had it. Uh-huh. It's like, well, the only things that I know about haiku are that they're short and they deal with images in nature. And yeah, okay, sure, I'll check it out. And like reading that collection, like everything changed from that uh-huh. point on. I'm like, oh, okay, this is the poetry that I, I should have been writing since. Do you still have that collection? And I have many, many more haiku collections that I've gotten uh-huh. since then. Um, it was the. I can never get the full name of it correct, but it was like the Everyman's Pocket Library Haiku Anthology that was, I think, edited by R.Y. or R.W. Blythe. Um, so this was like first published, I want to say back in like the 50s, maybe the 40s. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, that makes sense. Um, but like, have you, has your has your writing gone through any sort of fundamental shifts or have they been like gradual things that have just like over the years? Imagine when you, if you're started, if you start writing when you're like five and six (laughs) and eight years old, it's a damn good idea to change. Yeah. (laughs) You know, radically. Yeah. And I, 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 I've never sat down and been really like, thought about the changes but I'm yeah they, they're big changes and they're big changes sometimes like they, it looks like it's book to book mm. but it only happens to be that I made a book out of the the poetry that was going along and was going to keep going it's like it is like a river you know you can imagine arbitrarily stopping it Mm -hmm. but that's not a great idea but um i i I mean i think books are kind of arbitrary anyway but but they do mark they do mark differences like in like because i'm i've never i'm restless i guess Mm, okay and i go you know in different directions and i love forms and I, but I like to make up a form and kind of stick with it. Mm-hmm. And I've done that in a lot of different ways. So yeah, I, I make big changes really, you know? Yeah. 
I guess it would be really interesting to see like to get to have all of your collections and to, to like to chart the progress to see you know like starting from first collection to like Tolstoy killed Anna Karenina and then like the two other things that you have to just see the like how well, things like, have shifted uh, and changed. I know that like in my first my first book I wrote from when I was about nineteen till I was about twenty five. Hmm. That was that book, mm -hmm. and um, I was forbidden by myself <laughs> to abstract anything, to generalize about anything at all. And I bet you there is almost not an abstraction in the book or a generality in the book. Mm -hmm. And it was a good way to learn how to write, probably in a mature way. Mm -hmm. Like I wrote through high school all day, every day. I I filled endless books of poetry writing, mm -hmm. and I had a best friend who wrote to. We wrote to each other all day long, so I'm sure that was sort of like mainly go gossip, <laughs> you know. But um, I. I think that, I don't know, it, it, it's just, I don't know, it's just such a great luck to have poetry take over your life. That's such a good thing. Yeah. That, you know, so I want to read you one more poem. Okay. And I'm not going to read any poems from Tolstoy, Killed Anna Karenina, because it's kind of like, that's that's not what we're talking about. So I'm back to the I'm back to the poems that hijacked my writing life in the last two years. Yeah. So this is a this is the last one that's in a little chapbook that's coming out. And um, okay, it's it's called remembering, as if every time you did it you started beeping to warn others not to get run over by your memories. As if every time you did it, you started thinking to warn others not to get run over by your memories. As if every time you did it, you started weeping. As if every time you started bleeding by your memories, just enough to warn others not to get run over. And here's the prose part. So you'll get a feel for how those that works. Mm -hmm. After an agitated night of epic nightmares populated by strangers by the thousands who know everything about me I've never known or have forgotten. After finding in a marked up copy of Gaston Bachelard's Poetics of Space, a note to myself printed in blue ink in all caps marked with the sign of the first time. Another note in the script, there's a tie that binds us to our homes, a motto on a deck of cards showing two dogs chained to a doghouse. And on the book's last page and inside back cover, this list, the house, the gallery, four rooms, red trim, sickness, dinners, sleepwalk, oil lamps, split can, facing mirrors, our road, up front, back behind, our mule, the fields, the road, the river, the boats, the wake, the railroad, shell roads, the levee, the batcher, the cemetery, the tunnel, the bridge, blue angels, deer range, lake hermitage, 
cast nets, nutria, armadillo, wild geese, snakes, mink, lizards, cranes, songbirds. Wow. That's, those are like almost high bun in a, in a weird sort of way. Instead of the, like the, the prose part coming first and then like the haiku coming afterwards, it's like they're, they're flipped, but that, wow, that's, that's really cool. Wow. Well, they're all they're kind of different, but um, I also thought I'd kind of end reading them to you with a very Louisiana poem. <laughs> yeah, I, I caught the I caught the nutria and the levee and the crane. Uh, so. <laughs> um, okay, so I have um, I have two final questions for you, um, which are my two okay. traditional final questions for all of my guests. Um, all right. The first one is. If you have the vocabulary for it, what is your internal landscape like? And it doesn't necessarily have to be physical landscape. I've had some people come up with some wild stuff, but like whenever, if you were, if you were to close your eyes and sort of like find your centering space, like what is that space? Well, I would say it's, I would say it's the river. Mm. Yeah. Like seen from a particular vantage point or just the sort of like, just the, the. Seen from a particular vantage point. Okay. My spot on the river. Oh, uh, okay. And I, me and the river are one, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and th there was a two bends in the river on both sides of me mm -hmm. far enough away that I things would disappear if they were going north mm -hmm. and if they were coming south they would appear out of nowhere mm. and I loved that you didn't know what was coming you know there's a great movie this I adore this movie it's called First Cow I don't think I've ever heard of that um it's like it's a really, it's an interesting director. Just look at Google at first cow. Okay. And it's about the, it takes place in the Northwest Territory back in like the 1840s, 30s, something like that. And it literally is, there is a scene where the first cow is brought to the territory. <laughs> anyway. It, there's a two two young men who are the stars of it and the important figures in it, and it's really a beautiful, beautiful, incredible movie. But the opening of the movie, mm. the first maybe three minutes of it, could be my complete autobiography. Oh wow! Ooh. So you'll have to see it. Yeah, I'm. I'm very excited. If I have some time tonight, I'll I'll watch it after giving the dog a walk and doing some dishes and stuff. Yeah, I'm. I'm very excited for that. Ooh. Yeah. So that that's my answer to that one okay. for now. Cool. And my last question is, do you have a question for me? Oh uh, well, I've asked you a few. Let me mm -hmm. see if there's one more that I might ask you. Um. So, what? What caused you to keep doing your podcast? Um, it actually, so it started out, um, 
I think I may have, I've mentioned this, I think maybe a couple of times on previous episodes, but the, like going, going to grad school was a, was an amazing experience for me. Um, not only in just having the, like the classes and the teachers that I had, but also the fact that almost inevitably after classes, um, you know, whoever was in the, like the entire class would go out to a local bar and just kind of hang out for an hour or so. Um, and everyone like lived in the city so people could stay up kind of late and we had all night classes and you know, it's like people were working various jobs. So it's like you could be out until like midnight and it was fine. Um, and the, the conversations that we had in those spaces after class were as edifying, if not more so than the conversations we were having in class. And it, it felt like it, That's usually true. Yeah. And it like, lots of times they'd be extensions of things that we were, we were talking about in class. It's like things that people didn't get a chance to say or didn't realize that they were thinking about. And, um, it was, it, those, in those instances, a lot of ideas about poetry and just about sort of art in general really solidified for me. Um, yeah. And when I graduated, um, within the first, I don't know, maybe like after the first summer of, of graduating, and having gone pretty much the entire summer without seeing the majority of my friends from class, um, mm-hmm. I realized that I really, really missed having those opportunities to just like chat with people, you know, specifically about poetry, but just chat with people about whatever. Um, so I was trying to devise a way or trying to think of a way that I could still have those things, like have those instances. And the best thing that I came up with was a podcast in which it basically gave me an excuse to just talk with, because it's- it, well, How many have you done? Over, um, I haven't, so. I have not counted. I've tried to do 12 episodes um, per season and I'm on season five. So I'm probably in the 60s, maybe the 70s. Uh-huh. That's um, a lot. Yeah. And it, like it started out really with just my friends from the program. Um, like the first, probably the majority of the first season was just people like friends from the program that I was like, I want to, I have thoughts about poetry that I want to talk with you about. So let's like, this is the excuse that we have to schedule like an hour and an hour and a half to just sit down and just talk poetry. Um, and then I exhausted my friends. Um, like I <laughs> ran out of, of friends in Baltimore that I, that I could talk poetry with, but I realized that I still didn't want to stop having these types of conversations. Um, so I eventually just started reaching out to other people. Fortunately, I had been to a couple of AWPs. I went to like a Haiku North America conference. I'd gone to some residencies. So I, in that time, I had built up sort of enough, um, enough like other people that I encountered and met that I could yeah. lean on them a little bit to be like, hey, let's talk poetry. Um, and now it feels like I have just sort of like passed that level of, the sort of the the larger group of people that I know and I'm now I'm actually reaching out to people it's like that I don't know that I've always like wanted to talk to poetry about or just you know just like poets that I admire them like I I would love to just sit and chat and pick your brain about about poetry which is you know like what this wound up being which is amazing that of the like I sent out probably like five maybe like five or six messages um in a day um like to you and to other people and you were the the only one so far that has responded to being on, <laughs> on the podcast and it's like okay i mean that sucks that no one else did but like i'm fuck i'll, I'll take i'll take dara over anybody else any day um 
That's funny. But yeah, I mean, it really is just like the the thing that has that has motivated me to continue doing this because there have definitely been times that I've you know it's like I've gone a month or two without having a guest or doing a, an episode and just wondering it's like ah should I just pack it in? But it really boils down to it's like I just I I love talking about poetry and I love talking to other poets and other people that are like adjacent to poetry just about you know like to get their perspectives to hear their stories it's like I'm really usually one of the first questions I ask my guests is like why like why poetry why why is this the thing that has happened for your life and like how did it happen for you um because, well i answered that yes, I answered yes, that. yes and that's like that was that was really amazing to me that that's just that's where you decided to start because like that's that's one of the things that i'm the most interested about is just like i know how it started for me and i know all the the twists and turns and the bends and my own story of it but like i don't know how it happened for other people and everybody that i've talked to it's been different and it's, all, it's amazing yeah. to me that like everybody oh. has had a different story and a different experience and a different reason of like why poetry is the thing that they have allowed to consume. As do much you as ever I do you ever like to listen to other people doing similar things? Um, like other podcasts? You yeah. Um, I do. I haven't really encountered a ton that it's just that are just people like shooting the breeze about poetry. Well, you you should write down uh, the Ruth Stone, Ruth Stone Foundation, Ruth Stone House. Wait, let me let me get. It's Bianca Stone. Okay. Doing talking to talking about poetry with all different kinds of people, and it's great. It's really really great. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely gonna check that out. Um, so, Ruth Stone House, I think, is maybe what you might look up okay cool so and bianca stone there are a bunch of of them that are pretty interesting i don't always i mean i don't watch all of them you know or listen, listen to all of them yeah but every now and then i listen to one when somebody tells me oh you gotta listen to this one yeah you know like I've, I've caught a couple of like the poetry um i guess like the poetry literary magazine has like a, a poetry podcast um but i also like i'm most of the podcasts that i listen to are like over an hour long um and a lot of the other poetry podcasts that i've personally encountered are like 20 minutes half an hour or so and it's like i they're they're good for what they are i think but i'm i'm much more interested in things that are like you know like like the poem like poems themselves it's like it's the experience of it so you got to get the experience of it to really get the like you know you can't just chop it uh, you know, like kind of like the river, you can't just chop like 20 minutes out of it and have that be an episode. It's like, I, I feel like the, you need the kind of totality and you need to see where things start and kind of how they end. So you get the full scope of it. Um, yeah. Well, that's the one it's the Ruth stone house podcast. Okay. Yeah. I, I will, I will definitely check that out and I'll, I'll put it in the description of the episode too, to, to allow, to make sure that other people uh, can get access to it. Yeah. But it's, it's, I'm, like making books, like doing the editing and doing the design and the layout work and stuff and talking about poetry are like the two things that I I would want to do anyway and having a means to like legitimize it in some way is nice that, you know, it's like, because other, like, if I, I feel like I have a handful of friends that I think would do this, but I feel like more often than not, if I just, if I talk to them, it's like, hey, you want to just talk about poetry for an hour? It's like that's kind of, that's kind of a hard sell, but you're like, hey, I have a podcast in which 
we talk about poetry for an hour. It's like, that's usually a little bit easier for people to be like, okay, yeah, I, I can get on board with this as a person. Right, just, right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I should start asking just random people randomly if they just want to talk about poetry for an hour or so. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been the driving force of it is just the, the uh, constant desire to just want to be talking, like wanting to be in a communication and fellowship and community with other people that are, that are, you know, like actively doing poetry and are, are living the lives in which that is a thing that, that they have like access to. And, you know, it's, it's always inspiring and encouraging and um, I love it. It's just, it's great. Yeah. Um, thank you for um, inviting me to come talk to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking me up on the offer. Pleasure. Was, this has been, this has been a really, really lovely way to, to end a week. Um, and I, I hope that you have a, a good rest of your night and a good weekend. Um, and everyone out there uh, listening, uh, thank you so much for, for being my audience, uh, for coming back and hanging out, despite the fact that my schedule is um, as scattershot <laughs> as it is. Um, but as always, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you all. And I will talk to you all next time.